0: Say hello no. to someone, someone from uh, Massachusetts. Give
1: your hat to every lady that, that you
0: meet. <laughs> <laughs> At least tell me that was rolling. You're rolling for that. Yes. No.
1: Okay. Really... <laughs> 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 oh, no. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Kazella, president of the Massing Polling Group.
1: And I'm Jennifer Smith, news editor for the Dorchester Reporter.
0: So we're also here with Maeve Duggan. She does all things sports-related for us here at Horse Race Global Media Empire headquarters. A little bit later on, we're going to speak with chair of Senate Ways and Means, Michael Rodriguez about the Senate budget. But before we get to that, it's been a big sports week. So the Celtics are hanging on, still barely, in the playoffs. The Bruins are moving on. Um, it's also been a big horse racing week, of course, for the Kentucky Derby this week. And all of this is just full of Massachusetts sports and politics connections.
1: So, Maeve, why am I talking to you about sports this
0: week?
2: Well, Jennifer, once again, sports and politics are one and the same. <laughs> the Red Sox, in winning the World Series last year, were invited to the White House to celebrate. And Alex Cora, the Red Sox manager, announced this week that he will not be attending uh, citing his dissatisfaction with the recovery effort in his native Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Uh, he joins a number of other Red Sox players, uh, including Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts, and Jackie Bradley Jr. Notably, and I think why we're here discussing it today, the list of players who Core joins in not going are all players of color, uh, while the players, coaches, managers, staff who are going Uh, are mostly white players
0: and david ortiz went there because he's david ortiz he said quote you don't want to go and shake hands with a guy who's treating immigrants like because i'm an immigrant so that's i think the very obvious overtone that's going on here how have the rest how's the rest of the team's establishment responded to this
1: and also John Henry is planning on going, I think, is, is something that we should note as well. It's not just that there's a rift within what members of the team itself is going, but management is going.
0: Yeah, and John Henry's connection to Donald Trump is... <laughs>
2: Big buddies. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: But also he owns the paper that literally had to be shut down or where they literally had security outside. You know, it's yeah, not just buddies. There was a buddies, guy who said he was inspired well.
1: right. by Trump's, Trump's language about the enemy of the people and was calling in and personally threatening co-ops, which are, of course, some of the younger reporters who are there and saying some pretty horrible things. So – John Henry not only owns a sports franchise, he also owns a, a media franchise. So how are we how are we supposed to process this within the broader context of how
2: we feel about sports? So to me, there are three interesting things going on here. The first is the racial divide of who is and is not going. And what's interesting here is that we're actually talking about baseball and not football, or basketball, which when we think of sports protests over the past few years, we tend to think of the NBA and the NFL. Um, among those three leagues, the MLB has the worst record for diversity in its management ranks, in its coaching ranks, etc. So I think that's the broader context that's going on. Um, as you two mentioned, the other really interesting, disturbing, whatever word you want to use for it is the dynamic between John Henry also owning the Boston Globe, uh, which of course was targeted in the wake of their editorial that was defending the freedom of the press against Trump's rhetoric, calling the media the enemy of the people. And the third thing that uh, I actually learned while I was prepping for our little discussion today, (laughs) but I think it adds a really nice piece of historical context, is that uh, for us, it's very everyday that teams go to the White House, but it wasn't always that way. The first sporting event that took place at the White House was actually a baseball game. It was in 1865. It was right after the Civil War. It was supposed to be this big show of unification between the North and South, but it also is an important moment in the racial history of baseball because the president of one of the clubs who was playing a few years later then officially segregated baseball. So to bring it back to the present, when the chairman of the Red Sox, Tom Warner, says that sports should be a, quote, respite from the issues we wrestle with daily, it ignores the long history of race in sports and in particular in baseball.
0: So speaking of uh, the relationship between our sports teams and national politics, of course, the other big sporting event of the week was the Kentucky Derby. Um, and Derby Day was a big thing for Massachusetts sports figures. Tom Brady was there. There were some, you know, sort of his bros, Tom Brady and his bros, I guess. Um, there was also a picture, a picture of Bill Belichick with, with Mitch McConnell. What were some of the Massachusetts political connections that we saw on display at the Derby?
2: So I think this one's a very standard issue, rich people schmoozing and boozing together. I'm not surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. (laughs) This is kind of how the world works. Um, But to be fair to Bill Belichick and to prove that I can be fair about Bill Belichick, (laughs) I actually did some digging. He's a documented longtime horse racing fan. To the point where back in 2002, if you refer to the archives, he actually presented an award at the Eclipse Awards, which are, it's the annual ceremony for the National Thoroughbred Horse Racing Association. And this was really the most poetic part. The award that he presented was for Champion Older Male That's beautiful. Which I thought describes Belichick as well as it (laughs) describes (laughs) the horse. (laughs) And even further than that, uh, apparently he's used horse races as inspiration for the Patriots. So, back uh, in the run up to the 2002 Super Bowl, there was this horse called Tiznow pronunciation unclear to me, who uh, won the Breeders' Cup Classic. And Belichick was apparently so inspired by this comeback that he played the tape for the Patriots, and they then went on to win the Super Bowl. So the horse racing community now takes full credit for that Super Bowl victory. That is
1: an astonishing bit of information <laughs> and we applaud you for your digging on background <laughs> I here. thought on
2: the horse race it was only it's fair good, good that fact. we yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I, I mean that and that was a, a much kind of cleaner victory than the one that we sought the Kentucky Derby.
0: That's right so mm. uh, this weekend there was a very controversial finish in the Kentucky Derby uh, the horse that crossed first was disqualified uh, the horse's name was maximum security uh, the videos were the cause and continue to be the cause of a lot of controversy about whether or not what the jockey did was interference or whether it was something that the horse did on his own and whether it matters. Yeah, there was a
1: puddle that the horse stepped over and got in the way of other horses. yeah, Yeah,
0: all kinds of different explanations for why the horse sort of drifted outward and blocked some other horses and ended up being Dropped down to eighteenth, I guess. Yeah,
1: and now um, of course everyone is kind of in a snit about it and refusing to run the Preakness. Neither the winner, who was then disqualified, nor the second place uh, horse, Country House, neither of them is going to run in the Preakness. Uh, and then uh, the president, uh, Donald Trump, tweeted about how the decision was because of political correctness yeah, run amuck. So make of that. <laughs> I tried really hard. I stared at that tweet for a while, trying to figure out like if one of the horses felt hemmed in by the PC culture that we all live <laughs> in now. (laughs) I
0: I assume it was just like, you should win through any means no matter what you do. You ought to be able to be the winner if you win by any means necessary. What about
2: horse racing but add jousting poles? Well, to bring it back to our local Massachusetts (laughs) connection. Thank you, Maeve. uh, I have to give credit to Rich Parr, our colleague, who quipped that Bill Pelajek is never far from a cheating scandal. (laughs) Oh,
0: (laughs) Anyway, so, so that turned out very well for someone here locally. So our producer Libby and I were at the space for our live event, which is June 9th. And we were there last Friday, just before the Kentucky Derby, talking to Jessica Paquette, who by title is the VP of marketing for Suffolk Downs. We're sitting here at the finish line of the Suffolk Downs racetrack, and I'm here with
3: Jessica Paquette, the vice president of marketing.
0: And from what I understand, the vice president of marketing describes about one-tenth of the things that you do here at (laughs) Suffolk Downs. So tell people a bit about what you do here at Suffolk Downs.
3: I'm a little bit of a Jess of All Trades here. I've been here since I was an intern. I'm the TV personality and track handicapper during the racing season. So I'm the one that tries to pick the winners.
0: Wow. Okay. So track handicapper, you call the races, you're the vice president of marketing.
3: I don't call the races. We have an announcer for that, though I did call the race a race once when the track announcer got stuck in traffic when there was a tornado in Revere and he couldn't get here. So that was the only race I've ever called. I was actually the only woman in New England racing history to do that.
0: Wow. All right. So a little bit of history. So how long have you been here at Suffolk Downs? I've been here about
3: 13 years. I was the intern that never left.
0: (laughs) All right. I like that. So um, we're here at the just before the beginning, I guess, of Major racing season. We've got the Kentucky Derby tomorrow. Um, There's patrons sort of swirling around, looking at TVs. What's tomorrow like, first of all? And then I want to ask about what the season here is going to be like. Well,
3: tomorrow is horse racing's biggest day of the year. It's the run for the roses. It's the race everyone, even the non racing fans, knows and gets excited about. The race looks great. The field's good. I think we'll have a great crowd of people kind of coming out to celebrate, place some wagers, watch the race. And then racing starts here, May 18th and 19th, which is also the Preakness Day, the second leg of the Triple Crown. And we're expecting some good crowds, some old friends, and some good racing.
0: And so here, let's talk about what racing is going to be like here, because we have three weekends of racing. What is a weekend? What's a day here on on an actual race weekend? What's it like? What's set the scene for us?
3: It's a little bit of nostalgia mixed with excitement and a lot of enthusiasm. There's still really an appetite for horse racing here in New England, and we are the last thoroughbred track left in New England. So we see a lot of fans come out, watch the racing, and a lot of old friends come out, trainers, jockeys. People from our New England racing past also come out and visit.
0: So you've been here, you said, for 12 years, um, and this is the last season of racing here. So what does the future hold for you and what does the future hold for for this building that we're sitting in right now, which for those of you who are are not here is just a a beautiful old building that's looking right over the finish line, right over the racetrack. What's next for you and what's next for this place?
3: Well, for me, I personally still really believe in racing here in New England. I think that while this chapter here at Suffolk Downs is coming to a close, I really hope we get a chance to write a new chapter and see some new history as we're hoping to revitalize the fairgrounds in Great Barrington. There's been so much history here at Suffolk Downs. You walk through the building and there are flags and photos of all these great horses and jockeys and people that have come through here. And I hope it's not the total end of the story. And for me, I'm kind of committed here to Suffolk Downs and my team here wherever we wind up.
0: Tell me more about what might happen in Great Barrington. Is it going to be a new track? Is there a track there already that would be revitalized? What's that about?
3: It's an existing old fairgrounds. There used to be horse racing there. So the structure is still pretty sound and we're exploring options and what we can do to bring racing back there. It's in a beautiful location.
0: And for, for these grounds, it sounds like there may also be simulcast racing here still, possibly.
3: We're going to be open for simulcasting kind of beyond when racing ends this year. And beyond that, I don't know how long exactly we'll be simulcasting in this facility, maybe somewhere else. That kind of remains to be seen at this point.
0: So we're going to be bringing our listeners here for a day of racing. What should they definitely not miss while they're here?
3: The one thing I would recommend anybody do is to go down by the rail as close as you can get when the horses are coming around the turn towards the finish line, there is nothing like the sound of the hooves. Uh, You think you know what it's like, and then the thunder of it is more than you'll expect.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much. We're looking forward to it. So that interview was taped on Friday. Sunday, she tweeted out a picture of her ticket showing she picked the top three finishers in the Kentucky Derby and won $11,000 on a $24 bet.
1: I mean, it's astonishing. I'm very jealous.
0: So June 9th, that's a Sunday, 1230 to 230. There's a link out on our social media, and, and you know we'll be distributing that around. Definitely come. Bring the kids. Yes. There's all kinds of family fun.
1: But we're going to be taking a turn for the rest of this episode directly into politics. Giddy up. We talked last week about the top notes of the House budget, but it's the Senate's turn now. This week, the upper chamber released their version of the fiscal year 2020 state budget. Their proposal has already drawn praise and a little bit of controversy from around Beacon Hill and the establishment. It restored a couple of new taxes that the governor had introduced, but the House had stripped out. It increased funding for education, but in terms of higher education, UMass leaders say it doesn't do enough. And it delays talks of new revenues for transportation until later this year. As on the House side, the Senate document was shepherded in by a first-time Ways and Means chairman, this time South Coast State Senator Michael Rodriguez. We caught up with Senator Rodrigues today in his office between all of the budget craziness, so let's take a listen.
0: So the total budget that was passed was $42.7 billion. What are the highlights in your mind in this budget?
4: The biggest highlight of the Senate Ways and Means budget is, is, is its historic spending on K-12 education funding in uh, four major line items. Um, the first and foremost uh, is Chapter 70 funding, um, 268 million new dollars in Chapter 70 uh, funding uh, through, to every community of the Commonwealth. The second big bucket is SPED Circuit Breaker, Special Education Circuit Breaker. We live up to our commitment of providing 75 percent of the funding for all high-cost SPED students um, and that's, that totals of about $345 million in this budget, about $26 million more than FY19. Charter school reimbursement, um, this budget includes $100 million to communities, $10 million more than FY19, and regional school transportation of about $74 million, which is about a $5 million increase over FY19. Uh, so taken uh, as, a, as a whole, all those components um, add up to over $300 million in new K-12 education spending to support our local communities. Uh, beyond K-12 education, uh, the budget uh, invests significantly in substance abuse and mental health and behavioral health um, services, over $150 million in, in spending um, on uh, through BSAS, the Bureau of Substance Abuse uh, Treatment, um, creates five new beds for uh, recovery centers, five new recovery centers around uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and continues um, our heavy state investment in treating uh, substance abuse disorder.
1: So one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about on the horse race is the process itself. And it can seem a bit opaque to people looking at it from the outside, obviously. The House has a mysterious room where all of these kind of debates unfold. How is the Senate process going to unfold?
4: The Senate budget process started as soon as I was appointed by the Senate president as chair of the Committee on Ways and Means, we have met with every single senator for hours on end um, right next door in that conference room listening to their priorities our budget is very much a collaborative budget Uh, we hear uh, all of my colleagues um, priorities and what's most important to them and we try to incorporate that into our budget recommendation Um, of course that certainly every member has the ability and the opportunity to file an amendment to this document. This is a law, a a statute that we're passing that appropriates all this money. Uh, I would expect somewhere north of 1,000 amendments to this budget. Every single amendment will uh, be given its full consideration and every member filing that amendment will have all the opportunity uh, to debate those amendments on the Senate floor. Uh, We like to engage in robust debate we like to be as open, as transparent as possible. Um, And we like to set an example for the world to see that democracy is alive and well in the Massachusetts State Senate.
0: So let's talk about some of the specifics. Some of the things that have come up in news coverage include a new tax on opioid manufacturers and on vaping products. These uh, were in the governor's budget. They were not in the House budget. What's the thinking there on these two specific things and why they are in the Senate budget? So the two new revenue sources that were included in this budget were two that the governor had also proposed. There was a tax on opioid manufacturers and a tax on vaping products. These seem like two very specific things. Why these two? Uh,
4: These were two items that um, really were just sundry to a specific public purpose, which is addressing the opioid crisis, substance abuse um, disorder treatment, and public health. Uh, issues. Uh, There were a number of other revenues, uh, about $276 million of new revenues in this budget that include those two, but also include uh, $132 million in new taxes on recreational marijuana, uh, $41 million from really just enforcement of sales tax collected by online resellers, $27 million for transit accommodations, so-called Airbnb tax that goes into place into law on on July 1st, Um, in addition to the opioid manufacturing tax and the uh, vaping uh, tax.
0: We've also read about the fact that revenues this year are already exceeding projections by a billion dollars. How does that impact the process of budgeting? Where does that money go in the spreadsheet, so to speak?
4: Uh, That's FY19 money that has no effect on FY2020. We already have our consensus revenue for next year. And I think what that shows is just how volatile tax revenue can be. Just a few months ago in December, we were $400 million in the red below benchmarks. Um, I think we're learning how to deal with these cash flow issues relative to the new federal tax codes, the so-called Trump tax code, Um, no longer a salt state and local taxes deductible on your income tax return so those individuals especially those high income individuals that would normally prepay those taxes in december in order to take that deduction on their federal income tax are no longer doing that they're waiting until they have to pay it since there's no benefit for them to pay it early they might as well just wait to pay it when it's due on the 15th of april we all know you know tax day Um, and we saw a great spike And what was also interesting about this, I think, wonderful news in in April, uh, was that um, the stock market did well. Lots of capital gains revenue, which is one-time revenue. Um, Also, a big spike in the estate tax, which is unfortunate because estate taxes are not paid until somebody passes away. But it it appears that a lot of wealthy people must have passed away uh, last year in order to. But so you know that's that's nothing that we hope recurs. But um, so these are one-time revenues um, that will ultimately be disposed of in our final deficiency closeout supplemental budget of the year, and I would hope the majority of those get deposited into the stabilization fund.
1: And so, of course, talking about the difference between the House and the Senate as well, the House comes first with its, with its budget and then you guys follow it as well. Uh, so how much on the Senate side is a response to the House budget? You did hit the same amount of uh, projected expenditures, but you included the possibility for new taxes um, and will later, I believe, be considering opportunity for new revenue. So where do you view the Senate in terms of responding to the House or maybe splitting the difference with the governor?
4: We really don't put our budget together responding to the House. Our budget's put together responding to colleagues. Um, we do all work off the same consensus revenue. So we start. We started that way back in January, in uh, uh, December actually of last year, where we arrived at our consensus revenue figure. That's the same figure that's the governor, the House, and the Senate all use to build our budget upon. Uh, and then our budget is built upon responding to what our colleagues have to say and what their priorities were. And We heard loud and clear that the priorities of Senate members was education, was substance abuse uh, and mental health, was housing and homeless issues, uh, and that's the priorities that's reflected in the budget um, that we will be debating in a couple of weeks.
0: So looking into education specifically, uh, on the higher education side, we've heard some some uh, comments from leaders within the UMass system that suggest that they won't be able to freeze tuition with the amount of funding that they're being given in this budget. Your your comment suggested that perhaps they would be able to find a way to do so. Where does this go from here? Where does the discussion and the, the dollar amount for UMass go from here?
4: So the Senate budget concurs actually with the house and with the governor's recommendation of 558 million dollars for for the umass system that's a seven percent 39 million dollar increase over last fiscal year that's once again one of the historic high increase year over year and we feel very strongly with the amount of that increase that there's no need uh, for the umass system to impose more tuition or fees on its students As you know, the Senate conducts what we call Commonwealth Conversations every session, and we've heard at pretty much every Commonwealth Conversation town hall stop, one of the biggest issues from constituents is the cost of higher education, student debt, and how much debt students are graduating with, and we need to do more to reduce the cost of higher education, especially public higher education, that we have a a role in playing. So that takes responsibility on our side in the legislature to appropriate a significant amount of money, and it takes a responsibility on the UMass side as administrators of that money to do what it can to rein in costs and keep spending down. We have no say on what the UMass system spends its money on. We only have a say on what we appropriate. So we took our responsibility seriously by appropriating, like I said, $39 million, 7% increase. That's pretty significant. And we're going to ask them to do their part and step up to the plate and see if they can find that $10 million somewhere in their budget. And I'm confident they can if they tried.
1: One budget note that wasn't funded this year but has been in prior years was the Community Preservation Act, which uh, allocates funds that go toward historic preservation, green space, and affordable housing. Uh, Why not include that this year?
4: I think you'll be pleasantly surprised as the amendment process moves on. Uh, The Community Preservation Act, which by the way, I was one of the co-authors of way back in 1998. Yes, I'm old. Um, it's a priority of me personally. It's a priority of the Senate. We have traditionally passed increasing the uh, transfer fees to pay for that. And um, we just needed a little more time to get it right. Um, and I think um, you'll be pleasantly surprised at the end of the day that the Community Preservation Act will see its first increase in its history.
0: So look down the road, or if you will, down the rails with us a little. Um, Polling that we've done recently finds, the headline has been that people are reaching their wits end when it comes to transportation. Some are considering leaving the area, changing jobs, just endless frustration with delays. There doesn't seem to be anything in the budget that's a game changer on this. When does that start to happen?
4: That discussion uh, on transportation has already start, started to happen. Uh, I hear all the time, especially from those in and around Boston, more so. It's um, that uh, this transportation gridlock. Um, you know, when it takes 30 minutes to get from the State House to the Seaport District, uh, when I can walk it in 15. Uh, you know, it, something has to give, and as I as we drive into the city and all we see are cranes everywhere and this building boom going on everywhere, how are we going to move people around? If these are residential buildings being built, how are the residents going to get from there to their place of work? Or if they're commercial buildings, how are people going to get from their residence to this new commercial building? That conversation has already begun. I know that um, our chair of the uh, Committee on Transportation is looking into that, and I think later on this session, you're going to see a very comprehensive transportation package put forward.
1: So actually getting into a bit of how we structure the revenue discussion uh, there. You said uh, to the State House News Service that members are welcome to file revenue generating amendments, but that leadership right now doesn't anticipate needing new funding for the fiscal year 2020 budget. What did you mean by that and how should we be thinking about revenue discussions concurrently or separately from expense discussions?
4: What I meant by that was, first of all, um, the Senate is treating this budget as a quote-unquote money bill so that every member has the opportunity and the ability to file any tax proposals they want, whether it's to increase taxes or to reduce taxes, that we, in our tradition, will debate those uh, fully and and have a vote one way or the other in disposing of those bills, that we built this budget on revenues that are currently available to us and are incorporated in the consensus revenue uh, report. We are comfortable with that, and um, we, we produced a, a balanced budget, and I'm proud and happy that Senator Senate President um, put this commission together. Senator Adam Hines is very bright and has the ability to lead those discussions, and I look forward to, to the results of those.
0: So do you have a view on that question of whether or not it's best for something to be paid for by the people who use it? I think back to the 2013 uh, discussion and there was a gas tax increase, gas tax indexing, but then there was a cigarette tax and a software tax that were completely unrelated to transportation but yet used to fund transportation. How about this time? What kinds of revenue sources specific, specifically for transportation should we be thinking about, should we be looking for?
4: I think it's always striking a balance of broad-based taxes and specific user-based taxes or fees. I don't have any predisposed. I really haven't given it any thought, so I I don't have any predisposed opinion on what's the best package, if any, necessary and needed to fund and improve our transportation system. I'll let the working committee do its job and report back to us.
1: And so getting to the response so far on this budget, so uh, in the State House News uh, story, the praise in it was mostly from Republicans, whereas uh, the Progressive Mass and the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities were a little bit less optimistic. What about the budget is progressive, and how do you view the value of that label? What makes a progressive budget?
4: I guess you'll have to ask them. I've gotten lots of praise from my Democratic caucus members, uh, pretty much universally. Um, I'm very pleased that pretty much every one of their priorities that they articulated to me in our meetings were uh, included um, in this budget. Increases, you know, record level increases in chapter 70, fully funding sped circuit breaker, regional school transportation, uh, funding homelessness and housing issues with MRVPs and AHVPs. Um, So, you know, I don't know what label something progressive or regressive. Um, the, the budget is, is balanced. The budget focuses the investments in the areas that my colleagues asked me um, and told me was of priorities to them. So I'm very happy with it.
0: So, speaking of education, there's also a push that we 're reading about in the news to rethink the way that education funds are allocated. Do you think new funding will be needed to to do what the legislature wants on education or are the resources that we have enough and just need to be allocated somewhat differently
4: We'll answer that question when we when we get the um, the report back from the Committee on Education uh, on their recommendations of how to uh, implement the foundation budget review commission 's recommendations we've certainly put a good down payment and investment on it in this budget, time will tell whether or not we have the available resources to fully fund their recommendations or if new resources are going to be necessary, time will tell.
1: And then we're going to be wrapping up. So uh, you're from the South Coast, so we need to talk about South Coast Rail. The Baker administration now says the first p- phase of the project will be completed by 2022. What do you think about the idea to break up the project into two phases, and do you think that timetable is going to be met?
4: I believe now he said it's going to be 2023. He moved yes. it. He moved it off a year. Um, so I was first elected in 1996 in the state legislature, two years after then Governor Weld made a promise that if this doesn't happen in five years, sue me. Um, I have a groundbreaking shovel here, given to me by then Governor Paul Cellucci for the NBTA, New Bedford-Fall River Commuter Rail Extension, dated October 1998.
1: He is actually holding up a shovel for those I am actually
4: holding up a shovel. You see it, I keep it. So I've been living this project for my entire tenure in the legislature. This is the first time I really see light at the end of the tunnel. It's the first time where we have, uh, under the leadership of Governor Baker uh, and Secretary Pollack, um, with this new alternative phase one that goes through the so-called Middleborough route and, and incorporates the old colony line. Um, that I see it happening. I see, we have all the permits lined up. We have all the land necessary. There's no land acquisitions. There's no permits necessary. There's no Army Corps of Engineers permission that we need. We, it's, it's all on us. Um, the governor included full funding in his SIP, construction improvement plan. So it's gonna happen. Is it perfect? No, but we cannot let the perfect get in the way of the good. You know, in, in the perfect world, uh, we would have full-blown service through the so-called Stoughton Route. All the rails would be electrified. We'd have eight trains a day running north and south from Fall River and New Bedford to Boston. In this case, we're going to have three, three, trains, three peak trains a day leaving Fall River and three peak, peak trains a day in the afternoon returning from Boston uh, back to Fall River and New Bedford. Um, it's very good, and I think it's really going to be a game-changer. One of the issues we hear all the time, what we were talking about was traffic congestion. Uh, to take, I believe, 4,200 cars a day off the Southeast Expressway and Route 24 is gonna be major. We hear all the time about affordable housing. When I have young staff that work for me that are struggling to find affordable housing in and around greater Boston, and they're talking $2,000, $2,500 a month for an apartment, and I would say, Come to Fall River, I can get you a beautiful Victorian apartment for 850 bucks a month. <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll say to me, get me the train and I'll do it. If I can sit on a heated, air-conditioned, Wi-Fi-enabled commuter rail and in 92 minutes get off the train in South Station, you know, then I could take advantage of the affordable housing that is in the South Coast.
1: Well, that's a good note to end it on. So, Senator rodriguez thank you for your time.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
0: All right, so that brings us to the Pony Express mailbag segment, where for the last few weeks we've been doing official state stuff.
1: We did go down the entire rabbit hole on the state polka, which we will not play again because <laughs> it's incredibly catchy and just, and you know. And we care about you. We listeners. do care about you. We yes. care about your well-being and whether or not you sit up at 1 a.m. thinking about saying hello to people in Massachusetts. Sing so, it,
0: Jen. Do it.
1: Never. Okay. I would absolutely <laughs> never. But- We're moving aside from just the state songs this week. Uh, We've got some other really weird state sundries.
0: Yes. So one of our listeners, Katie Hollihan, of the Associated Industries of Massachusetts, started tweeting about all the other obscure official state sundries, as she calls them, we have here in Massachusetts. So here as a special educational section and a treat to you, our listeners, we invited her here to drop some serious knowledge on all things official. Katie, welcome to the horse race.
5: Thank you so much for having me. As you can tell, I'm really excited to be here.
0: <laughs> so I'm an enthusi- enthusiast of official state sundries, and you tell us you're not the only one.
5: Oh, absolutely not. I, I- I have to think that a, a significant portion of your listeners share my enthusiasm and my interest. I think if you've spent any time in the Statehouse, you, as you say, you start to go down this rabbit hole, you cannot stop.
0: <laughs> so in your original tweets, you said we have an official state rock, an explorer rock, whatever that is, something called a building and monument stone, and that doesn't even get us out of the geological section. What are all these things, and why are they official state symbols?
5: They absolutely... Seem uh, rather arbitrary, and some probably would think maybe a waste of taxpayer time and money. But if you know that most of these designations are the result of legislation filed by students who are learning about the legislative process and and most likely really proud of something in their hometown and their district, I would highlight uh, Deborah Sampson, the official heroine of the Commonwealth from Sharon. Look into her, she's incredibly cool. Uh, And so the legislative process is complex and it's ponderous. It takes a really long time. And if you're sitting there as a student just looking at a flow chart, it's mind-numbing and boring. How cool is it to... Draft a piece of legislation, file it, come to a public hearing, figure out the difference between third reading and steering and enactment and engrossment, and all of those were out of order.
1: And then you get to designate an official state fungus or something out of it. Absolutely. So that's, that's a real joy, I think, in a child's Absolutely. potential. Like, I mean, the thing that I always love, kind of from the black little part of my heart, <laughs> is whenever you have these adorable groups of students that are really excited to like propose a new state bird, and then they get shot down by the legislature, but... Do you have some actual favorites? I mean, it,
5: it would be very hard for me to choose my favorite mainly because I just. I wouldn't Do you have a, favorite I wouldn't one a to, few. What What's about a point? favorite
1: rock, though? We have oh, so many
5: rocks. How could you possibly know <laughs> them? We have a ro- a, an official, just straight up rock, the Roxbury Pudding Stone. We have an historic rock. We have uh, an explorer rock, a building and monument stone. I'm not entirely clear why we needed to celebrate granite. But we do. It's very hard and sparkly.
0: Just to make New Hampshire jealous, maybe. Ooh, Ooh, I didn't
5: even (laughs) think of that. Does a significant portion of our gross state product depend on granite? I have absolutely no idea. We also have a glacial rock. If you're from Fall River, that's probably pretty important to you. One might argue, I'm not saying I would argue this, but one might argue that these official designations are ways for certain tourist destinations to sound more exciting <laughs> when they are, in fact, incredibly underwhelming. I would never say that about Plymouth Rock, but that others might. That would be light. a deeply
0: cynical thing to say. It,
5: it really would. No, I have, have would
0: to ask you about that. some of the legislation this session, because there are three bills that you pointed out to us which <laughs> yes. could designate, among other things, the giant puffball farm. <laughs> 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 the
1: giant... Puffball fungus, fungus, as the oh. official
0: mushroom of the Commonwealth. The, the that Boston, Cream adorable, cup, though. Boston Cream Pie Cupcake is the official cupcake of the Commonwealth, which has a long and distinguished history that you've gone into, Jen. And uh, even one designating the official seasoning of the Commonwealth. Any of these going to pass? Any idea what their <laughs> prospects are? Uh,
5: as Jen referenced, sometimes even these uh, theoretically non controversial items can be shockingly. Uh, controversial, as I, I think you referenced the the chickadee in Maine. I know. Google that one. Just can you imagine appalling. unanimously voting down a fourth grader's bill to yes. designate? This yes, is, I This can. is not just. Yes. <laughs> this is, she says with a twinkle in her eye, "This is not just a Massachusetts thing," mm-hmm. and and I celebrate it as students' opportunity to learn about their constitutional right to file a petition before their legislature, uh, but. I would never want to predict what might happen. You you never know uh, what might happen with any of these designations. They the be the thing that I shocking. will be I will be
1: watching a hundred percent is just to see what happens with the Boston cream pie cupcake because as dedicated listeners of the horse race know this is one that that has in fact kept me up at night because it did not become the official state cupcake. So that is why you have this completely bonkers section, uh, 62, that if you actually go and look at the general laws, just says there is no 62. Like It's dun, like dun, a haunted dun. room. Yes, it's exactly. It's
0: like buildings that don't have a 13th floor. It <laughs> just yeah. goes straight from 12 to exactly. 14. Exactly. I can't
5: imagine that most of your listeners don't know that chapter 2 of the Massachusetts General Law is available online for your perusal. I would really encourage you to check that out. But if you go to Wikipedia, sometimes you can connect to different websites and check out all sorts of strange little connections. And
0: this is where they'd go to find out that the official blues artist is...
5: Taj Mahal. She did that
0: without looking. without looking. 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 We've got got (laughs) lists
1: of this in front of us, and she did not look at the list. She's just got it. Got it. What is our... Ooh, I just want to do a quiz now. What is our official
5: reptile? Uh, garter snake.
0: Okay. This is we're just going to here. I don't be this makes here. me very uncomfortable. <laughs> <Lady>
1: <laughs> Fox, the official insect. All right. Well, Katie Hallahan,
0: this was very educational for us and our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us in the horse race.
1: Thank
5: you so much for having me.
1: Come back anytime we have a nice new mushroom.
5: <laughs> I will. I'll keep you updated. <laughs> Bye.
0: So we hope you enjoyed that roundup of all of our state official paraphernalia and sundries. If you want to be on the horse race, send us your thoughts, comments, questions, etc. to thehorseracepodcast at gmail.com. But that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Steve Gazella of the Massing Polling Group.
1: And I'm Jennifer Smith with the Dorchester Reporter. Our producer this week and every week is Libby Gormley. Find us online wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you all for listening.